This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 190 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On this show, I'm talking to Harry Hollander and Ted Pitts, who've bootstrapped Moraware.com, countertop fabrication software, to a yearly revenue of over $1 million, which is something I'm sure we'd all like to do. Harry and Ted, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. We've met at two microconfs so far, and um, you you guys are absolutely awesome. In, in both microconfs, you came to the texting dinner and we had a great chat. I, I've always been fascinated and interested in your guys' story. Perhaps, Ted, this question for you. What is the elevator pitch for Moraware? Well, we make scheduling and estimating software for people who build kitchen countertops. So that's pretty much the, uh, you know, a very specific type of customer. And that's who we go after. Now that's very niche. Yes. And so part of the story of the past, I mean, we've been doing this for over nine years. I guess we're into our 10th year here. And uh, we've gone through some different iterations of trying to go to broader markets and have, over time, have, have realized that we really have to go niche in order to have success. So who, who had the idea? How did this whole thing come about? Back in 2002, uh, my brother called me up and he actually makes kitchen countertops for a living. And uh, he and his uh, business partner had bought some software and they... Uh, well, basically, it sucked. So he, he called me up and said, hey, I bought this software. It sucks. Can you fix it? So at the time, I was um, just doing software development at a uh, venture-backed startup in Silicon Valley. And uh, so I you know, took a look at what they were doing and said, well, I can't fix this other software, but I'll build something for you. So, so was that desktop software? The other software, yeah, it was an access program. And uh, I had been doing web software, and so I didn't really like building desktop software in the first place, but uh, that wasn't really the problem with it. The problem with it was uh, it just, you know, wasn't solving the problem that they needed to solve. Hmm. And so I thought, well, this would be a nice, you know, side project. I'll work on it for a few weekends and have something done. Completely underestimated how much it would take. What happened? How, how did you uh, get involved with, with Harry? Well, I had um, built out the the first version of the product, and my brother's company started using it. Basically, that took maybe four months or so, from about August two thousand two until you know Christmas of two thousand two. And so, when they started using it, they said, "Hey, this stuff's great. You uh, you ought to sell it to other people." And so that's when I started thinking, "Well, maybe I should maybe I can quit my job and uh, do this for a living." And uh, so I was just trying to figure out if that was if that was reasonable. So what I had done is uh, I just called up a fabricator here who was near my office and dropped by their shop for uh, lunch hour and just walked in, talked to the owner and said, hey, I'm building this thing. You know, if I, if I build this, would you buy it? The guy said, yeah, I'd buy it. And so that was pretty much my only market research before, you know, quitting my job. So I went back to the office, <laughs> quit nice. my job, put in my two weeks notice. And it wasn't until I think it was the day after I quit my job that Harry um, just happened to be in town. He was working at a company who had one of their offices was in Silicon Valley. And he just sent me an email out of the blue and said, hey, I'm in town. You want to have dinner? 
being that I had just quit my job to start this thing, I was basically uh, the most optimistic and the most excited I'm ever going to be about something. And so I think that kind of uh, rubbed off on Harry a bit. Yeah. So um, Ted and I know each other from college. We, we were friends there, but really hadn't talked in the, like, the 10 years since we graduated. And um, when I met up with Ted just by coincidence for dinner, and we just started talking about our, our stories that we had in common. And both of us had worked at you know, venture-backed Silicon Valley companies and had gone through the whole process you know, from you know, the very beginning of those companies all the way through, well, the company I worked for went public and it was all exciting uh, until I realized that it, we were just selling snake oil anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so then when I met up with Ted, he was like just ecstatic because he had quit his job. He was going to do this thing that was very real. And uh, I was excited and Ted mentioned that he might need help. So I kind of said I volunteered my services. I didn't know what that would be at the time. So, Well, Ted, I mean, did you, did you know what you needed? Were you looking for development help or were you looking for business help at this stage? Basically, it was, it was kind of overwhelming in terms of all the things that need to be done. I knew I wanted people to help me, but I didn't know what that meant. This wasn't started as, you know, okay, it's going to be a company that's going to go out and raise funding and we need, you know, a VP of this and a VP of that. It pretty much was just, I was trying to build the product, but at the same time, we needed to somehow start figuring out how to get customers, how to do documentation and everything. So you had built it um, on the side in the first four months, some kind of prototype. That's right. It was all just evenings and weekends while I was, you know, at my full-time job. Well, so how did you fund yourself then? Once you'd kind of decided to leave your job, how did you fund yourself? Well, my wife was working and so we could, you know, just live off of one salary. And did Harry live off your wife's salary as well? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, luckily I had set aside enough money where I felt comfortable quitting my job. And, you know, I guess I I was very optimistic about when we would be making money, you know, once I joined Ted. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Which was kind of foolish. Uh, No way. (laughs) How how far off were you wrong? Well, I thought just, you know, weeks out and we'd be raking in the dough. And it turns out uh, that was more like years. Uh, so, Well, and your wife was working at the beginning, too. Yeah. So my wife was working, too. And we had a like uh, a good little nest egg saved up. And I was willing to risk that because I was really unhappy with what I was doing at the time. So how many years were you guys both working on this before you'd made even any sensible money? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by sensible, but the first, it was... Okay, enough um, to live off, like, like, like sort of, sort of j- just to cover your costs, to cover your, both of your life costs. Well, it took a while before it actually was, uh, we are paying ourselves even a reasonable salary, because for the first year and a half, we paid ourselves nothing. Huh. Then wow. um, at about a year and a half, that's when we actually hired a couple employees. And so once we were paying other employees, we, we had a, uh, what we felt like was some kind of sustainable revenue coming in. Because until then, we didn't feel like anything was even repeatable enough to, you know, to hire someone so that you could, you know, commit to someone that you're going to pay them a salary. Um, but so at that point, we started paying ourselves a salary, but it was very minimal. What gave you the gumption to stick at it for a year and a half without actually making enough money? Probably the same thing that's given us the gumption to stick at it for almost 10 years now. That is probably still the, the best idea that we're working on. I don't know. I, I, guess, I guess I haven't asked myself that question before. Hmm. You have a good answer, Harry? Well, I I don't know. I mean, in some ways, uh, it kind of flew by at the time because we were so focused on trying to build a sustainable business and neither of us really cared about paying ourselves a a decent salary or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it was just uh, we had bad priorities, uh, something like that. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. Or just a very much a long-term view of things. Right. 
Yeah. You know? So that was how we viewed the, you know, sort of the investment in the business was the fact that we weren't taking salaries so we could actually grow this business. Harry, when, when you met Ted and he said, look, I've got this idea for countertop fabrication software, it's going to bring in loads of money. <laughs> what, what made you go, okay, this is the, this is the guy I'm going to work with. I'm going to spend the next 10 years partnering with this guy and we're going to build this countertop fabrication software business. You know, it's kind of crazy, but that, that night that we had dinner, um, we just went through these stories of all of our work experiences that we'd had in the past. And even though we worked in very different kinds of companies in different industries, the, so the kind of the lessons we had learned were kind of the same. And I, I had known Ted as a friend, uh, but never as a coworker. And uh, just, we had such a similar view on what it means to run a business. And well, I mean, obviously neither of us really knew what that meant at the time, but we, we had seen other people make big mistakes we didn't want to repeat. And it just seemed so much better than going through that same grind at someone else's company. So I had no idea what that, you know, what that meant that, you know, Ted and I would be essentially married for, you know, for life. Um, <laughs> you know, I just knew that it would be fun. And I think we've, you know, even at the beginning when we were, you know, struggling to, to get the business going, it was still incredibly fun and energizing. Well, Ted, um, just, just um, on that, do you think you could have done it alone? I doubt it. I mean, you know, I, I could have tried and I would have had some amount of success, but it wouldn't have been the same company at all. I mean, at some point, because the software we're selling is, we're, so we're selling this product to small businesses. It's a product that is core to what they do. So it keeps track of, you know, all the work that they're doing. So it, it actually requires a lot of support because they rely on it so much. They're always asking us for more features and wanting to do more. Trying to do it just as a single person there's just so much work to be done that um, it would have been completely overwhelming. So I don't know how long I could have gone on doing it just by myself. Do you have any advice for anyone looking for a partner? I mean, was like, I guess in your situation, I guess it was just serendipity, really. Oh, completely. Yeah. Like Harry was saying, he didn't, you know, he didn't realize that he'd be married to me for the, you know, the life of the business. But that, <laughs> that is how it feels that it's, uh, if we had been the wrong partners um, for this business, it would have been, it would have really sucked. And you guys don't live in the same place, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that, how that all hangs together and how that works? Yeah. So, um, so I live in Portland, Oregon. Ted lives in Reno, Nevada. And um, at the beginning, well, I guess I was in Portland when we first started and uh, Ted was still in the Bay Area. And um, for the first few months of trying to work together, it was really actually horrible because we didn't talk to each other. And um, we didn't know what the other person was doing. And it was just really um, frustrating for both of us. And eventually we learned that we just have to be on the phone every day, whether or not we have something real to talk about. Most of the time we do. And uh, just that very intentional communication is what makes it all possible. And um, we get together in person occasionally anyway, things like microconf or industry events um, for us is a good excuse for us to hang out in person but the fact that we're constantly over communicating to each other is the only reason I think it can work at all. So that's that's sort of like the stand up, the the, the daily stand up, uh, the thing done when you do uh, Scrum. Right, and the you know the next challenge beyond the two of us living in different parts of the country is what happened when we hired employees, and we actually just hired employees were who were friends of ours, and they happened to live in different parts of the country as well. <laughs> so we pretty much just started off by, you know, having everyone work from home, from a different state, a different time zone. And, you know, we had to think a lot about that, be very deliberate about whether we were going to choose to have an office 
or choose to, you know, try and live this, you know, virtual company lifestyle um, ongoing. And for a, for a long time, that was a big uh, question mark in our mind. And we finally, we, we kept putting off, you know, getting an office um, longer and longer. I, I think we just sort of figured out how to make it work. And in a lot of ways, it's, I think it's actually just makes you hire people or work with people who are self-managing. You know, it doesn't let you hire anyone who you're, you think, well, I'll hire them, but I know I'm going to have to keep an eye on them constantly. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the actual business that, that you do day to day and the software a little bit more, you know, more in the specifics. Because bearing in mind, we have quite a technical audience, so they'll, I think they'll understand it. I'm interested to know a little bit more in depth what the software is and what it does and how you make money from it. The way it's sold now is a subscription product. How it works on the back end is each customer basically has a website and a database. Um, so we use the .NET stack with SQL Server as the database. When it started out, it was actually sold differently. We actually sold it as just downloadable software. It's been a transition over, over the years of moving from you know, a downloadable product to a subscription you know, hosted product. What, was the, what, what does the pricing look like on both of those? How, how is it different? So with the um, subscription, we have three levels. Um, it's basically 99 a month, 199 and 399 based on different sets of features. And we've actually uh, introduced a, a second product just this year that is um, sort of an add-on product that's a $50 a month per user subscription. And so our, our typical customer um, is paying us about $200 a month. And um, maybe this one for Harry, when you, when you first started um, your downloadable software, what, what was the pricing of that and, and how did that work? When we first started, um, we basically made a big mistake in terms of how we price things. So we, instead of having pricing that was related to uh, the number of users, we had just a flat fee. And I think when we started out, it was $5,000. And then what we expected to happen was to sell the ongoing annual maintenance at another $1,000 a year after that. And um, what we discovered is that the problem with that was every year we would have to resell our software to our existing customers. Huh. And so um, the, the problem that we ran into is everyone has this list of features. And in order to pay us maintenance, they say, hey, here's my list of features that I had last year. Nothing got done. I'm not going to pay you the maintenance. And uh, so that was actually really uh, painful. And because we didn't have pricing that scaled with the size of the company, we left a lot of money on the table too. Some of our customers are a lot bigger than others. And so just charging a flat fee, no matter the size of the company, uh, was a, a big mistake uh, that we discovered in retrospect years later. So, so then you changed the software and you made it so that it, it scaled. What, what was the kind of pricing structure for that software then when it was still downloadable? What we did is we raised the price of the downloadable software and at the same time, we introduced the software as a service. Basically, we raised the price of the downloadable version so much that only a tiny fraction of people would even consider it. Basically, it was just there as a, a reference point. Okay, so you were anchoring it. I get it. Yes. Yeah. Um, the big problem, one of the big problems with the um, paying up front instead of paying the monthly subscription is that it was, it was very difficult for a brand new customer to come in look at it and figure out how much it was going to be worth to them. Because our, our, the, the customers we have, I mean, because we've been around, you know, see nine and a half years, I mean, we have customers who have been using it for nine and a half years. But there's no way that someone 
you know, nine years ago, buying the software is going to look at it and say, oh, I'm going to use this thing for nine years. So I'll <laughs> amortize the cost over, you know, a nine year period. So basically, you either are completely underpricing your product if you have them charge all up front, you know, or you, you, you price it so high that they're like, oh, that's ridiculous. It would only make sense if I used it for nine years. And so there's no way, you know, when you're selling it that way to actually get them to understand, you know, that yes, this is how much it should cost and you're going to use it for a long time. So transitioning over to a, just a monthly payment, um, I think the most important part of it for us was just aligning the usage with the payment instead of having a pay up front and then hope they use it enough to make up for it. You guys are pretty early in the software as a service game, right? I mean, if, if, how many years ago did you start doing that? Well, that we was... kind of got pulled into it kicking and screaming by our customers. It was like 2008. Is that right? Yeah, we started 2008 and then we, kind of, we really made the full shift in the beginning of 2009. And was that on the back of Salesforce? Well, what, what happened when we first started... Uh, <laughs> When we first started uh, pricing it, a lot of, there was a lot of talk about software as a service being you know, the next big thing. And everyone we talked to who said that all pointed at Salesforce being the reason, being the proof that software as a service was going to be this great model. And so they were pointing at Salesforce who had you know, basically were just about to turn profitable or who had just turned profitable. And they said, look, these guys are profitable. They're selling it as a service. And they only lost a billion dollars getting to the point of <laughs> profitability. And we looked at that model and said, well, we don't really have a billion dollars to lose in order to get to profitability. So I don't think software as a service is for us. And so that's, you know, early on, even though many people were saying that's how you should go, we just didn't have any role model to copy. And so, um, okay, so, so you say you were, you were kind of um, taking their uh, uh, kicking and screaming, but what was the actual fin final deciding factor? Was it some com customer conversation or, or what happened? So it was a, uh, a couple stages. So the first stage was part of the problem with pricing, with having a fixed price, is we were always torn between charging enough for you know, the big customers to actually make it a profitable product for us, and also charging a small enough amount in order to have small companies be able to buy it. Because we didn't want to just sell to the top 100 companies because aren't, they aren't big enough. They're not going to pay enough to make a business out of selling to 100 people. But if you want to sell to, you know, the top thousand customers in this industry, then you have to be able to, you know, scale down to a smaller price point. So what we had done um, with the downloadable software is every time we wanted to raise the price, we'd introduce a, a lower version that had, um, you know, less features at a lower price point. And so the first time we did that, we, we, we started with one version that had everything we brought in. The second version we called standard edition that was cheaper and had less features. And then the next time we did it, we brought in a third edition. And this time, this third edition, um, we called it basic edition. And we said, in order to get the price point low enough, we're just going to host it because we couldn't afford the support of having it installed on, you know, hundreds of people's computers and having them call us up every time their, their computer crashed or something went wrong with their network or something. So that's, that was sort of our, our first getting into subscription is this, this new low product. We said, well, it's going to be hosted only, and therefore it's only a monthly service. So it was $99 a month. And that's kind of how we first started doing it. And then after about six months of selling that, people who were buying that wanted to upgrade into the, you know, the, higher, you know, the higher versions. 
but they were on a subscription. So we said, well, we'll give them a path to upgrade that's also a subscription. And so that's how we turned the, the other products into you know, subscription as well. So this one for Harry, um, since this, this all came about through the customers being uh, quite strongly vocal about it, um, I'm wondering how often you guys talk to your customers, how important is it that you talk to your customers and how much are they part of the, the product um, development and feature cycle? Every good thing we've done probably for the last uh, eight years has been a direct consequence of talking to our customers. Uh, so we're on the phone every day. So uh, both myself and Susan, who does most of our support, we're constantly on the phone talking to our customers day in, day out. Our customers aren't very technically savvy. And so a lot of the, the cost of our business is supporting them, walking them through how our software works. Um, and so what we do is, you know, whenever we try to keep our ears open for the kinds of problems that they're running into and um, that feeds back into development. Do you have a strategy or do you just, um, is it just when they call up with problems or do you kind of proactively go out and hunt them down? (laughs) Well, so over the years, we've gotten a lot more structured about it. So when we first started, uh, you know, there was, well, it, it was really haphazard. So people would buy the software. And actually I think the, the first person who bought it, that we didn't know, um, Ted burned a, a CD, wrote on it in a Sharpie, and sent it to him in the mail with no documentation, nothing. And you know, <laughs> obviously, they, they weren't able to succeed very easily. <laughs> so, so over the years, we've actually got online documentation, support, and now we're at the point where we're proactive about the support with new customers. So basically, someone buys our software, part of the sales process is setting the expectation about what's going to happen to. That's really critical because um, in these small businesses, the owner is the person we're talking to most of the time before they buy. And then typically they hand it off to their office manager, which might be their wife in a small company. And uh, we have to get that person on board. And so it's essential before they even buy, we, we want to set the expectation of what it's going to take to implement our software. So, so how do you set that expectation? That's what via a phone call or is that yeah. documentational? No. So, so it's all through, uh, I'd say the bulk of the interaction we have with our customers is through phone calls and conversations. Really the, the way we try to do the whole sales process is identify their problems rather than just talking about our software. And, uh, the way we do that is we ask them how they're doing things now, what works about it, what doesn't, and the consequence of not changing. So if they can identify those things themselves, they've kind of sold themselves on our software. So once they buy, what we do is we schedule support calls just so they, they have uh, time with us schedule, scheduled ahead of time on their calendars because these guys are all running small businesses and uh, are constantly interrupted and aren't driven by their, their calendar. They're not in these small construction companies, they're not sitting in front of a computer all the time. They're out in the shop, visiting their own customers, worrying about installation, um, and dealing with really uh, low-wage employees of their own. And so they're constantly finding fires. So since you guys have been working on this product for, I guess, 10 years, it'd be interesting to hear at the beginning and the middle and, and, and now more recently, how much of your time is spent on product building versus marketing and how's that kind of shifted over the years? Well, at the beginning, I was the only developer for the first, I guess, uh, almost two years. And so that was pretty much 100% of my time in the first two years was just doing development. 
And so at the beginning, Harry was doing the, you know, all the sales calls and trying to cold call and set up, you know, marketing things for uh, going to trade shows and putting in ads in magazines. And um, once we hired a developer, then I started doing a lot more support and, uh, and Harry was still doing, you know, Harry was doing sales. I was doing more support and we had a developer who was doing all of, all of the software side. And uh, then over time, we, we later hired a support person um, so that then I was able to stop doing support and go back to doing a little bit more development. In terms of percentages, it's really kind of changed with the, um, with the em- employees we've had. That's probably been the biggest uh, difference because the development has never, you know, the need for the development has never gotten less. Uh, we basically have, you know, customers who are asking us every day for new features and uh, our backlog of work to be done is always growing. Um, so there's, hmm. there's never been a point where we've said, ah, oh, the product is finished and we can move on. So, what, so what are the, what's the percentages like now? I mean, this is the company that's been going for 10 years. Um, what, what percentage do you put into marketing of your overall resources versus building? Do, do you have an answer for that, Harry, in terms of how much is marketing now? Because that seems to be less at the moment. 10 or 20% of our total time, or maybe even more than that. I'm not sure. So I, I still spend a lot of my time, let's say half my time doing the, the sales uh, and I guess the the thing that's time consuming in terms of marketing for us is the the in person like uh, going to trade shows or uh, stone and countertop industry events. Well, what, what was the what was the breakthrough for you at the beginning? Like, so you said you said that um, it took you a couple of years to get to break even. What what was the the marketing breakthrough for you that got you from that point of not being there to getting there? I think the thing that kind of pushed us over the edge was we, we got an early adopter customer who introduced us to his friends. And, and I, I think that was kind of the, the beginning where we, we saw the light that people would want to buy what we have. We knew that we solved a real problem. And when we started this, so our, our software that we, uh, that we call Job Tracker does scheduling for countertop fabricators. And because we started doing that during the housing boom, everyone was being overwhelmed by having too much to schedule. So we got a couple key customers and we went to a, a meeting of a, a group of these top, this top tier fabricators. I, I think that's when it sort of clicked that we had something that a, a bigger audience of people wanted and we got a, a bunch of customers. I think we went from a handful of customers to 25 customers in the course of a few months. I, I'm not sure if that sounds right, Ted. Yeah, that's about right. Okay. And that's when, you know, that was kind of the first big break for, breakthrough for us. Yeah, none of the, your, I think your question referenced, you know, how did you, how did you go from not get being there to being there? It's like there, there was no, there was no leap anywhere along the way. I mean, everything has been very incremental and it's, you know, incrementally better month after month, quarter after quarter, but not, uh, there's no, been no big, you know, breakthroughs really. So it's sort of like the Derek Sivers first follower concept. Like you, you got this first, um, early user and, uh, cultivated a relationship with him. And then from that basically connected with, with other customers. Yeah. There are just certain customers who are, 
you know, very social or, or vocal about what they're doing. And uh, so those are very helpful to have. I mean, it wasn't, you know, our first, our, our first few customers weren't like that. And so they weren't nearly as helpful as uh, this one customer in particular who really just, uh, you know, try, they, they really enjoyed being on the bleeding edge of, you know, buying new products and working with new companies. And then when they did that, they, they'd talk about it. But was it was this this kind of breakthrough 100% because of the customer or did you somehow change in the way you related to customers in some way? This one was because of the customer. I think they were probably our our fifth customer and like Harry said that helped us get, you know, quite a few of the, you know, the next 10 or 20. Um but it really the the breakthrough was, you know, First, we were cold calling. And so our first breakthrough of getting customers was actually starting to do some marketing. So we put a small ad in the back of a trade magazine, and then we went to a trade show. And each of those things started getting us, you know, a few customers. And then we started doing, you know, more marketing of really trade, trade shows and uh, magazine ads was the only marketing we were doing. So was, was, was cold calling more or, or less effective than the trade shows? What, what's the kind of benefits? We, we've really never had success at cold calling. Some of the customers that we cold called early on, we would, uh, we'd have a good conversation and they'd identify that, you know, yes, we have this problem and that, you know, we knew in our minds that we solved a problem that they cared about, but somehow we just were never getting them to the point of, you know, buying. So it's been your trade shows really in your, in your specific case, trade shows has been the, the meat of, of where you've got your customers or has it been word of mouth or? Well, at this point, it's word of mouth. I'd say uh, last year, and I, I don't remember the exact stats, um, but I think over 70% of our new customers were uh, referrals from other customers. Or um, even better yet, uh, they, an employee quits from one company and goes to another company and uh, wants to use our software at the new company. <laughs> nice. So that's like, that's like, that's the, I'm sure that's the way that Adobe makes at least 50% of its money. <laughs> Interesting. And do you guys do any email marketing or have you ever? So lately we've been doing a little bit more of that. And especially so with our new product that we introduced this year, we have a, a landing page with the, a little sign-up sheet and people get an email sequence from that. But it's, it's very different from the, the product that we sold originally. The, the software we sell is actually pretty complex and it requires them changing their whole business process it's so important for us to have a conversation to make sure that the timing's right for them, that they actually have the problems that we can solve and that everyone at the company's on board. We can't automate the whole process through email or websites, but we definitely keep reminding people that we're there, that we're interested in these topics of making their business better in this industry. And so we do some of that through email and uh, you know, we've got a blog that talks about uh, customers in our industry and industry events and, and that sort of thing is becoming more more of a channel for us. But I'd say in the construction industry, so much of it still relies on face-to-face interaction. So that's what we end up doing a lot of the time. By the same token, probably SEO and Google AdWords probably haven't been that relevant for you then. Not really. I, although, so with our new product, we actually, for the first time, I think people are actually searching for the kind of thing that we do. And that's all around drawing and estimating countertops. Uh, People actually in our market are searching for that. So there's a chance that we can get better at doing SEO. Part of it might be that we just suck at it, and that's why we haven't used it well in the past. Um, But but I think maybe going forward, 
you know, people are going to continue to get more savvy in our industry. So uh, there's a chance we could do more online. And so you guys, I know you guys said that you go to a lot of conferences like MicroConf, but you sort of seem to be a little bit outside the sphere of the typical, uh, I mean, for, I think of something like Plugio or one of these smaller software as a service apps as the typical kind of thing that these guys are going after. So I'm wondering what you guys, what, do you agree with that statement and what you guys get out of things like MicroConf? We, we don't go to a lot. We've, we've basically, for the last few years, gone to the Business of Software Conference and also uh, MicroConf. And, and they're both similar because I think everyone there is on kind of the same path. You know, your company might be bigger or smaller. You might have a slightly different market that you're shooting for, but you're trying to make real software and not necessarily go after the, the venture capital and uh, trying to build it through revenue. So I don't know if that's uh, how you think of it, Justin. Yeah, I think that probably is, but I'm trying to I'm trying to wrap I'm trying to wrap my head around what you guys are talking about and what you guys have done. And you see, I'm always very selfish about this. I'm always like, how can I apply this to me? How can I how can I apply this to 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 learn something from my business? And so I'm trying to uh, that's what I'm what I'm trying to get um, in a way. Because I feel like at uh, both microconference microconf and the business of software, um, we've met quite a few people who are working in you know various niches that are not technology users or aren't software developers. So I'm not sure that, that we're that uncommon. I guess, I guess it's mainly to think about the, the SaaS aspect of it and the smaller price points. Like you guys are pretty high price points, right? Right. Um, so, so something like, uh, I don't you, uh, you guys read Hacker News, right? Is that, yes. yeah. don't you? Yeah. So, you know, the, I don't know, Light Table or these kind of typical apps that, that kind of come out there. Um, not, not that they're necessarily about tech or whatever, but just that they're, I don't know, Three month projects. <laughs> I guess that's what the difference is. Mm-hmm. Like your 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 software sounds like it's it's a ten year project, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, and and that is the difference. That's the difference with the higher price point is that it's you know the software is actually doing something critical for the customer, right? It's not a side project. It's not something that they're just uh, you know it's not an impulse buy. It's something that's yeah. you know cr- critical to their running of their business and. Um, so the, the good part of that is that, you know, we get a higher price point than if it was just a, you know, an app on an iPhone. But that also comes with a lot of responsibility of, you know, being a mission critical software to hundreds of companies. And so and, and all the support that that goes along with that in a large part because of the kinds of customers that we sell to. So if you could do it again, would you start that same kind of company? Probably not, <laughs> because no, it's just been a very long, you know, a long, slow grind, right? And so, um, and, and I don't know that, you know, we, I could have necessarily done better in a different market or something. So, I mean, one of the reasons why this market is available to us is because it's, it's difficult. It's, you know, it's hard work to, uh, you know, produce that. It's not a three-month project, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, you read about all these other things and you think, oh, we could be doing something that is, you know, a larger market. So you can do the same amount of work, but get twice as many customers or 10 times as many customers. Be- because our original product is this complex product that people aren't just searching the web for, you know, the keyword that we're, you know, that we're promoting. Um, the sales were more difficult. The, uh, the marketing was more difficult. The uh, support was more difficult. Okay, well, so having gone to MicroConf uh, and, and software business, what, what are some of the 
key lessons that you've learned at those conferences and have you, you know, how have you applied them to your business? Well, one of the first things we did at uh, Business of Software a couple of years ago is we, um, we, we listened to a, a few different talks. And uh, I, think, I think what we usually come out of these conferences is it's not something that one person says, it's a combination of something that, you know, two or three or four different people say that uh, hits us in a certain way. And so a couple of years ago, um, we were listening to um, people like Seth Godin and uh, Dharmesh Shah and some of the things that uh, they were saying led us to conclude that the real value that we have as a company is that we actually are serving this market of countertop fabricators. And it's mm-hmm. not that we have a, a product that does scheduling or product that does estimating. Um, it's, it's really just the, you know, we have this certain customer base and that they, they come to us for software solutions. And so hmm. up until that point, we had been still had, you know, maybe an idea of expanding the market, going after, you know, more than just countertop fabricators. Um, but I think we had that, at that point, we kind of concluded that we really just need to double down on the countertop fabricator market and, and the difference that made for us is we started building products that were actually specific to countertop fabricators rather than just building products that were specific to solving certain scheduling problems um, that happened to be sold to a certain market. We actually started making software that only will work for this market. And the, the first thing we did after it was like right after business of software is we went back and we had this idea of uh, an exchange for customers to sell granite remnants to each other. Mm-hmm. And there were actually a couple people that were trying to do this for a living, but it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me that you could take two companies who know each other and you can stand between them and say, hey, I'll, sell, I'll have you guys sell stuff to each other, but I'm going to take a you know, 25% cut of it, even mm-hmm. though you know each other and you can talk on the phone if you wanted. And so we said, well, that's kind of silly. Um, why don't we just put up a website that lets them trade slabs back and forth with each other without someone in the middle taking a cut? And so we just took a couple of weeks and we built um, this site called Remnant Swap. And it's kind of a, you know, Craigslist for selling granite slabs. And the, the thing that makes it a little bit different than Craigslist is, one, it's, you know, specific to, to countertop material. And two, it, it gives you a really easy way to do a bulk upload of all your inventory. Um, but other than that, it's just a free place, you know, on the web to go and, and put this stuff. So that's free, but what does that bring to you guys? It brings us a little bit of, a little bit of marketing. It's, it's one of those things that's like, okay, here's something that's specific to this industry that is software coming from us to our customer base. And so it's really just a, a bit of marketing. And it was, very, you know, it was a very short project. We were able to just create it, put it out there, and not have to do a lot of work on it afterwards. Um, so it's almost like you're, you're, you guys are in the position of consultants for an industry, really. Yes, except we're not getting paid by the hour. We're only getting paid by the product. And so, um, but, that, but that is how it, how it feels, is that we're pretty much, um, you know, just focused on this customer base. And, uh, and that lets us, you know, care about their problems. Instead. Well, how many different products do you, do you make? Well, so then after that one, so we had that remnant swap. And then we, the other thing that came out of the same business of software conference was another product, which is an estimating product for countertops. And this one was going to be so specific to countertops. It's all based off of drawing a countertop 
um, basically using HTML5 canvas. So you can just really quickly do a sketch of a countertop and have a price come out the other end. And does that, does that cost? So that's, the, um, that's $50 a month per user. So it's basically for each salesperson. And we just, it, we spent uh, over a year building it, the first version, and we released it about five months ago, back in January. And, uh, and so that's been, you know, our focus recently is just all, all the development uh, we've been focusing on this product. How many customers do you have for that, if you don't mind me asking? What are we up to? I think... Uh, about 150 or so? Yeah, something like that. Not too shabby. No, it's... Uh, a lot faster sales than we ever had with, you know, our first product. But part of that is because we're, you know, we're able to sell to customers that we, you know, are already using our other product, but not all of them were customers of our old product. It's also is because we're, you know, marketing a very specific product to a specific customer. And so this is, this is an area where, you know, Google, Google SEO has actually worked for us, sort of the first place it's, it's really worked for us. And um, it's just a, it's a product that solves a very specific customer need. And it's not so complicated that you have to actually organize your business around it to use it. You can just have one person in the company decide, hey, this is going to save me, you know, four hours a day, so I'll use it. And you don't have to get everyone else in the company to agree that you should be using it. So that's, uh, that's a little bit different from our, our scheduling product. So do you think that's a good rule of thumb for, for entrepreneurs um, to try and find a specific market, you know, in the same way that Amy Hoy talks about? Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a trade-off between the product that is very simple to get into and the product that's complicated to get into because the one that's simple to get into is, can also be simple to leave. So uh, I think at some level having a, a scheduling product that uh, is very much embedded in the processes of the company um, makes the customers very, you know, dependent on you. <laughs> yeah, it's very very unlikely that they're just going to leave without, you know, having a good reason, without uh, you know actually having a better answer out there. And and so from from microconf, which is much more about the well, obviously micro entrepreneurialism. Um, what what did you guys get from that? Well, so for MicroConf this year, we um, got a few very specific things. Uh, and one of the key things we came away with is the experience of the customer's first, you know, first five minutes. And mm. as yeah, we were too. listening to, uh, I guess it was Patrick McKenzie made a big point about this. Um, we were sitting there thinking about our customer's first five minutes on our, on our new estimating product. And we we're thinking, wow, that's not a very good path. <laughs> and so we, we immediately went back, you know, to the hotel after the conference and started saying, well, how can we make that better? And we mapped out a whole bunch of ways. And so basically we spent the, the next two weeks out after MicroConf just working on that initial, you know, experience from the customer and made it drastically better. And it's something we could have done, you know, months ago, but just, you know, we weren't thinking about that particular problem. I think the reason we weren't thinking about it is because when you have a customer who's, you know, who you're talking to on the phone, they're, they're rarely, they're probably never going to tell you, Hey, you know what? That first five minutes was really painful, but then after that it was okay. Mm -hmm. No, 
they're going to tell you all the things that they're thinking about after they've been using it for a week or a month. Um, and so we just never have feature requests from people saying, oh, I wish you could make the first five minutes better. Because once they're past that first five minutes, they don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's just something that we have to uh, be proactively, you know, keeping an eye on because no one's going to complain about it to our face. Well, I think that's true in general, right? Like nobody has ever asked us to make our software easier, right? They always ask for more features and more complexity and yes. just trying to constantly fight that and figure out ways to, uh, you know, make things better and easier is actually, I, I think that's a big part of what we've come away with, uh, especially this time at MicroConf. How do you distinguish, I mean, I have a, an issue with this, uh, with Plugio. How, how do you guys distinguish between a customer request for just this one customer and should I do it? Or is, is it only going to benefit that one customer or is it going to benefit everyone? I don't think we ever do. It's very rare that we do anything that only one person asks for. Because chances are, if it's actually a good idea, we're going to get, you know, three people asking for it very quickly. It's, uh, I think it's pretty rare that we get a one-off request that has ever been a really great idea. I mean, maybe it's obvious that someone asks you for something, you say, oh, that's a great idea and you do it. But if you're questioning whether you should do it or not, then chances are you shouldn't be doing it until you get, you know, at least three people asking you for it. And maybe if you have a lot of customers, three, it's, it's a lot more than three. But, but for us, it's usually been three has been kind of our cutoff before we consider it a problem that is actually something that should be solved. All right. Well, um, I'm just going to wind up with uh, maybe five, five questions here, um, which I think would be a nice way to, to finish this. Um, one, of the, one of the questions is, what are some of the hardest times that you've had to go through? And how did you get through them? I think the, um, when we, when we, the first couple of years we, was during the housing boom. And so our sales were always increasing. Our employees were always increasing. Everything was getting better, you know, month after month. And then because we were in such a, you know, specific industry going after, you know, this construction industry, when the housing market crashed and construction went down by, you know, 60%, you know, things started getting worse in the market. And that was uh, a very new experience. And it was basically, we were at this point where there's no way we were going to leave it because we had, you know, we had enough success that it was paying our salaries and we had a, you know, a large customer base, but things were getting worse. And so mm. I think that was uh, probably, the, probably the hardest time for, for us. Yeah, it was kind of terrifying to, you know, consider the fact that we're going to work harder to get less uh, going forward. And uh, yeah, it was really scary. There's basically a a point where, you know, if if things are going to fail, then you know what to do. And if things are going to be, you know, successful, then you know what to do. But we were in this middle part of, it's like, it wasn't failure, but it wasn't this great success where we were like completely happy with it. You're in this, this uh, moderate success is kind of a trap. Because maybe you're, you know, making a crappy salary, but you have something there, you know, you have a customer base that you're not just going to abandon. And so you kind of have to just tough it out. And, mm. uh, and you don't know if it's ever going to get better. Yeah, I mean, you really were in the thick of the storm in your industry. Yes. <laughs> so, so how did you, I mean, how did you get through that? Well, that was, so that was one of the events that forced us to switch to a subscription model for our pricing. Um, cause when we're just selling expensive software in order to grow the company, we would have to get more sales year over year, you know, in a continuous way. And with the subscription model, every new customer represents growth. And so, um, 
that's that was one of the solutions that we ended up having um and now you know it's great because uh you know rather than having to rely, rely on getting more sales we we can you know just make sure that our existing customers are increasingly happy you've got the flywheel going as uh, rob walling says yes that's very true all right so what have what have been the best times that have happened um in your startup and tell us a little bit about that and how they came about Harry, why don't you tell us this? <laughs> you know, I, I, it sounds so cheesy, but I feel like now is actually the best time. Like, I feel like to some degree we're living the dream, right? Like we, we've got an existing big base of happy customers that we are building new products for. Our, our customer base is growing and our revenue is growing. And uh, we're actually doing cool new stuff, which is really exciting. Well, how big do you want to, how big do you guys want to take this? I mean, you're you're doing. I don't know your exact figures, um, but you're doing approximately a million now. I mean, do you want to take this to a hundred million dollar company, or what? What's your thoughts? Well, well, that's not possible in the market that we're in, you know. But I, I don't know what the the next goal should be. Neither of us are, are particularly goal oriented, and so uh, I don't. Know, sometimes Harry beats himself up over not having a goal, and then later he'll decide <laughs> it's a good idea not to have a goal. And so I think at this point we're. Uh, you know, we're just looking at, okay, we have the second product now growing that to its potential, which hopefully the second product will be able to have the same revenue as the first product. So by building a second product, we will have, you know, essentially doubled our revenue. And, uh, and the goal is to just keep doing that. It's like then build, you know, the third product and hopefully that will have, you know, a big chunk of revenue as well. And so there's not really any specific goals that we have other than to just keep making everything better. I love the fact that Harry is a non-goal-oriented salesman. You, you <laughs> it, never really hear about that. Well, it, yeah, I don't know if that's a model that anyone should emulate either. <laughs> so it kind of sounds like you're building like a family restaurant business, you know? That, you you're open, open up a pizza place in one town, then you're going to move a few towns over. That's very much like uh, how we're doing it. Um, I mean, with that in mind, I, I guess, you know, in the short term... Because now we have multiple products, we're also we want to hire another developer um, to help us, you know, keep keep improving our existing products, and then also start thinking about the next thing. So um, I guess that's part of the reason we wanted to be on TechZing is to kind of put the word out uh, that we want an awesome developer. Oh, what kind of developer <laughs> are you looking for? So we do .NET, SQL Server, JavaScript, HTML5, and uh, we're pretty much looking for senior level person who is going to be, you know, like us, you know, working from home, very self, self-managing. And but not goal-oriented. <laughs> no, not goal-oriented. <laughs> they just have to be able to, you know, take what is the number one thing that they should be working on and uh, be disciplined enough to sit down and crank it out. And what, and what are we talking, like, um, San Francisco-style salary or more like, uh, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of nowhere salary? Yeah, we, we, we pay a competitive salary, but we also, you know, everyone works from home, so you can be working. Ideally, it would be, you know, near one of us. We were in, you know, Reno or the Bay Area or Portland or somewhere in one of those states. But, uh, but we also have, you know, can do elsewhere in the U.S. Oh, awesome. And what would, the, what would their daily work look like? Get, get up and put your pajamas on, have a cup of toast. Pajamas are optional. But, uh, a cup of tea with toast yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and have a Skype meeting. Do you do like stand-up every day? How many, how many people do you have working for the company right now? 
So there's four of us now. You are as profitable as Nintendo is per employee. That's that's pretty awesome. Uh, that, the, the, the million dollars isn't profit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. No, that's, that's a, the funny thing I, I think about uh, when I listen to all these interviews. A lot of people talk about top-line revenue, but uh, the profit numbers are, I don't know, variable, right? It's, it's so easy to take, it's very easy to spend a lot of money very quickly. Mm-hmm. Spend it on employees, on marketing, on uh, various things that, uh, that burn through it quickly. So that's part of what we've been trying to do recently is really try and figure out how we actually, you know, sustain things at a profitable level. Because, you know, over the years, it's with revenue going up and going down, we've had years that were, you know, very, you know, that were decent. And we've had years that were very bad. And uh, we're trying to get with this, this subscription pricing, we can actually have consistent revenue from month to month. So therefore, we can actually have, you know, planned properly for how we're spending. And before when we were just doing downloadable software and everyone was paying up front, it was really difficult to figure out how, you know, should we hire someone? Because just because you had mm. to profit this month and you could take that and hire someone, you know, maybe that money's not going to be there next month or next quarter. And in fact, that's the case. It, it, it wasn't there, you know, the next month and the next quarter when uh, the market started turning down. What startup resources do you like to read and listen to? Do you, I mean, do you guys get pretty involved in the startup movement? I mean, given that you've gone to a business of software and microconf, do you also continually consume that kind of stuff? Well, we certainly, you know, listen to a lot of podcasts and read blogs. Um, but uh, of course, so none are better than texting. Yes, texting <laughs> would be number one. <laughs> oh, that's very but, kind uh, of you. And um, um, what? So, so what? What other um, podcasts do you listen to? So startups for the rest of us, of course, Mike and Rob doing microconf and uh, Mixergy, although I can, I can never keep up with Mixergy. He does so many interviews, but uh, I've gotten a lot of, you know, a lot of value out of a lot of those uh, interviews with, with other founders. Harry? Yeah, I, well, I, I think that's pretty much the, the same for me. And, and a lot of reading blogs, you know, I, I guess anything that shows up on Hacker News uh, is always uh, fodder. I really like... Patrick McKenzie stuff as well. That's always been good. And I think especially recently, that's something in the, the front of both uh, Ted and my mind is how do we improve the, the customer experience and then how do we make the marketing better online? Well, um, is there, was there anything that I uh, didn't bring up that you might like to talk about? I don't think so. Do you have anything, Harry? No, I, I don't think so. Did you feel like you got something useful out of us, Justin? I, yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm interested to know what's the biggest piece of advice you'd give to any listener who's interested in being a bootstrapping entrepreneur. So I, I think for me, based on the mistake, the, the pricing mistake that we made is uh, that you, you need to be, it, like no matter what, you're going to be undervaluing your software at the beginning and you just need to have the presence of mind to, to raise the price and to adjust to that so you can build a sustainable business. At least that's the the problem that we had to overcome. But how about, for example, a software like Plugio that's in a very saturated market where there's lots of free offerings? How would you deal with that issue there? Well, I think the key is to not sell something that is just like a bunch of other offerings. I mean, you have to somehow uh, make your product unique for a certain audience so that there isn't a, you know, a comparison where they could use, use another product for the, you know, and get the same value out of it. And so, and then, and then once you have that, then you have the same, you know, you're basically in the same position. You then are just 
pricing it based on the value you're providing to those guys. Mm, but if you're if you're if you are selling something that has a complete substitute in something else that's free, um, there's not a whole lot you can do about that, you know, other than change your product to be not a commodity. Well, so for example, I mean, I guess a WP Engine, um, mm-hmm. like the the basic concept of it is offered for free on WordPress.com, and then at the at the other end of the spectrum, you have I don't know, it's like a thousand dollar a month version sold by WordPress.com Pro or something. So I guess what he's done is he's he's I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, you, you don't you saying? don't look at what he's doing and say, oh, that's just like another offering. Right? There, are, right. there is something unique about what he's doing, which is, okay, they have experts on staff who are going to you know, wa- help you personally walk you through having success with their service. And that's very different from the commodity hosting, which is, oh, you get the server, uh, do it all yourself, and if you don't do it o- optimally, that's your own fault. And so, you know... In, until you know five other people come along and offer the exact same uh, you know level of service and level of we're going to make sure that your WordPress hosting is actually optimal, you know until that happens, he's not a, selling a commodity. You know? mm-hmm. And it could be that he changes the market because other hosters say, "Wow, we can raise our price if we just offer this extra level of service, and then that becomes the new standard. But you know for now, it's not. So Ted, what? What uh, is the biggest piece of advice that you'd give to any listener who's interested in being an entrepreneur? Well, I think just uh, you should consider what happens, not just in the, you know, the failure scenario or the success scenario, but what happens if you're in the middle and what are you going to do about that? Because I suspect, I mean, that's where we got to for you know, quite a few years. And I suspect it's probably relatively common that uh, you, know, you don't hit your, your highest target that you were hoping for, but you also don't just outright fail. And, uh, you know, that's actually a, probably an, you know, a, a position that a lot of people are in that isn't talked about very much of this, you know, this trap of being in this moderately successful thing that is maybe not enough to replace your salary, but too much to quit. Uh, well, I'm just wondering, so, you, so you're saying you've spent a lot of time in this middle ground, but in a, if you could put it in a nutshell, how you got out of that? Well, the way we got out of it was just looking at the various problems we had and working at them one by one. So part of our problem was uh, we were spending too much, too much money on sales and support. Part of our problem we were, is we were pricing. Actually, I guess pricing was the number one problem. Um, but then also, you know, the cost structure. And so it really was just a process of, you know, we went through multiple years of digging ourselves out of that by sort of improving things. But the interesting thing is it seems like it's when you, when you made your product cheaper that you started becoming more successful, not when you not when you made it more expensive. Right. Well, it's not that it became cheaper or more expensive. It's that we matched the pricing to the delivery of value to the customer. So when we were, one of the, I think one of the key things that we've learned over, you know, over this whole thing is that we have more success when we take on the risk from the customer. So if there's, a, if the customer is looking to buy our product, they're perceiving what their risks are and they're, they have risks in, you know, paying money up front for something they're not going to use. They have risks in, you know, am I going to be able to run this software on my computer? Am I going to be able to, you know, manage it over time? You know, what happens if my business declines and I need to stop paying this? So 
all those different aspects of the, the, every, everywhere where the customer is seeing risk, I think that's the, those are the changes that we've made is taking on the risk from the customer so we don't make them pay up front anymore. We don't make them install it on their machines. We don't make them, you know, do, uh, you know, have, have any kind of risk that we can figure out how we can take on the risk instead of giving it to the customer. We do that. And that's where we've had, you know, increased sales or, you know, more revenue over time. Now you see that, that was worth the price of admission. Is that, is that um, something that you guys got from um, Business of Software Conference or MicroConf or is that no, copyright that's, that's Ted one that, Yeah, that, that, that's copyright Ted Pitts. That's one that we've just learned, you know, from the School of Hard Knocks of uh, just kind of identifying, you know, when we made a change, it's like, well, why did that change work? And in general, the changes that we've made that have worked are things where the customer no longer has risk. And that, but we do have that risk. And so we now have taken on, you know, hosting responsibility for all our customers. We never wanted that at the beginning because we, you know, we knew that was a problem. But it was even more of a problem when each of our customers are individually responsible for their computers. That's a great way to look at it because if you think about it, you can map that to everything. So for example, you're talking about even the, the scripting of the first five minutes. At that point, what's the risk the customer has? The risk the, risk the customer has is they're just going to waste time. They're going to log into this thing. They're going to waste time. Mm-hmm. So you script that first five minutes and you stop them from wasting that time. So you, you kill that risk. You could totally map that onto every part of the business. Right. And, and the nice thing about taking on risk is that customers will pay you to take on that risk, right? If they're, if they're comparing two options, one of them is, you know, here's an option with risk and here's an option without risk. Well, you're going to pay more for the option without risk. So you don't have to just take on the risk and get nothing in return. You can actually rate, you know, take on more risk and raise your price. I like it. That rocks. <laughs> well, that's, that's the best thing I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, um, Ted and Harry, um, thanks so much for, for being on the show. Um, that was really interesting. Thanks a lot, Justin. That was awesome. Hey, without Jason here, um, I'm used to Jason saying that's a wrap. So I guess I have to say <laughs> that's a wrap. We are out. Yeah.